Good morning. My name is Merle, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at FBC. And today we're going to be reading from, from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13. But, that is, but as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the truth of your word. We thank you for your promise that your Holy Spirit will make known to us what you have for us, that we might be more like your son Jesus. We pray this morning, God, that you would open our eyes and hearts to your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you are concerned that the words of the scripture weren't up on the screen. They were, and the Spirit allowed those to see them who... <laughs> I'm kidding. I couldn't see them either. It's fine. We assumed you had this passage committed to memory. One of the largest growing groups of people in our country are people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious spiritual but not religious. And this is a person who has an indication or a, a sense that there is more to the existence of the world than that which can be seen and touched and tasted and experienced in the physical realm. So this is a person who understands there is the immaterial, the spiritual, the unseen, and, but they aren't really excited about how the Bible describes that reality. And so this person says, you know, there's more to the world than what can be known in the physical realm, but I'm not really religious, and so I am spiritual, but not religious. And so what we, we have is a lot of folks, and we might, many of us might count ourselves among those kinds of folks, which is we're searching for a sense that there's something that matters beyond just waking up eating a meal, going to work, going home. We, we have a sense that there should be more to life than just getting up and living until you don't any, anymore. And so people are in a search of a, a sense of something that matters, a sense of something that has a connection to uh, what goes beyond us, something bigger than us, a sense of that which is real. This is especially occurring among younger folks who spend so much time in, in the world interacting through a digital means to have an experience with real people in real places. And, uh, and so we have people 
who are really excited about old churches and old liturgy. Uh, doing church in old languages like Latin. In buildings that are musty and moldy and don't have heating and air conditioning. and Seems very spiritual, doesn't it? Right. So that's this idea, spiritual but not religious. So the question maybe we should ask ourselves as believers as we look at our scripture, what does it mean to be spiritual? I, I would expect as people who are pursuing God by faith in Jesus, we would say, I want to be spiritual. And then I would hope a follow-up question is, well, then what in the world is that? What does it mean to be spiritual? Does it mean when I pull into the parking lot, I pray that God will open my eyes to the right parking space. Is that what it means to be spiritual? I don't know. And if we can be spiritual, what do we gain from that? So what does it mean to be spiritual? And if we could be spiritual, if the Bible gives us that description, what do we gain from that? And that's really what our passage describes for us this morning. So the title of the passage, or our, the message this morning is, The Spiritual Life. The Spiritual Life. And this is something the church in Corinth was really pursuing. They wanted to have a spiritual life, but they were pursuing it in really strange ways. In particular, they were pursuing it through academic and philosophical pursuits. They were trying to be spiritual by exploring and thinking about very complex and very interesting spiritual ideas. What does it mean to know God in very complicated and sophisticated ways? Steve Jobs was well known for noting that it takes... A lot of work to make something simple. Simplicity, he said, is the ultimate sophistication. But for us, there's something appealing to the sophisticated, the complicated, the, the difficult to know. There's a, a sense of I'm better than others if I have a good understanding of this complex and difficult thing. And that's where the people of Corinth were. They didn't want to be sophisticated through the simple. They wanted to be sophisticated through the complex. The people of Corinth wanted to be deep thinkers. They wanted to be complicated. They wanted to be respected. These are the kinds of people that when you go out to dinner, they order a wine off a complicated wine list and they smell it before they drink it. Guess that's the thing. And then they slurp it to make sure it's properly aerated. And you're like, are you okay? Are you having a seizure? No, I'm aerating to get the bouquet. I'm sorry? <laughs> My wine comes in a box. I don't, what do you? That's what, they want to be complicated and sophisticated and take a, their little sip and, and describe to you the, 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 the color of the hair of the dog that wanders the vineyard where those grapes were picked. That's the people of Corinth. And that's how they wanted their church to be. And that's how they wanted their Bible to be. And that's how they wanted their relationship with God to be. So they wanted to be deep thinkers. So the gospel to them was so basic and simple and elementary. There's got, there has got to be more to it than just Jesus dies for sinners. Certainly, there's got to be more to it. But what we're going to see here, the Spirit reveals to us, in this passage, the Spirit reveals to us the deep truths of God. And when the Spirit reveals to us the deep truths of God, what do we find? The gospel. The Spirit reveals to us the deep things of God. And when he does that, we discover the gospel. 
If you were to say, you know, I want to plumb the depths of who God is and explore the deepest and most interesting and profound things of God, when you had dug that well deep into the heart of God, you will find the gospel. That's what you will find according to this passage. Look at verse 9. It's a quote from the Old Testament. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The spiritual life, as he's going to describe here in these first couple of verses, the spiritual life is discovering God. That's the spiritual life. What does it mean to be spiritual? To be spiritual is to discover God. And the first thing we need to recognize about discovering God is that doesn't really happen. Is we don't find God, God makes himself known. God decides and determines to make known to people, to individuals, who he is. That's what he said. No eye has heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared. The things of God cannot be known unless God decides to tell us the things of himself. The things of God can't be known unless God decides to make known to us the things about himself. Now this would bother the people in Corinth. They want to be brilliant. They want to be insightful. They want to be next level. That means a person who is is complicated and sophisticated, engaged in brilliant philosophical thinking through their uh, chewing on interesting insights over the course of time, they can come to insights and discoveries. Look what I know and what I have figured out. And what the Apostle Paul would say is this, if you have discovered something, it isn't God. Because God isn't discovered, he makes himself known. If you have found God, it's because he let you find him and he told you about himself. And the, the Corinthians didn't like that notion because they wanted to be filled up and puffed up about themselves. They wanted to be able to say, there is something special about me because I had this profound insight. And Paul says, if you have had a profound insight about God, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the fact that God has made himself known. That's how God is known, when he makes himself known to us. How does God make himself known to us? Verse 10, I'm glad you asked. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Spirit tells us the things of God. We must understand from the Bible that, the, that God is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son was born, incarnated as a man, Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is God, one of the persons of God. So the, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is able to make known to us the things of God. Why? Because the Spirit is God. So the Spirit tells us the things of God. But more than that, he tells us more than just merely the things of God. Look what it says. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Holy Spirit is God. Are we on that? Okay, good. I, I just want to make sure we're staying with me, because what I'm about to say, you're going to, okay, let me think. Okay, here we go. The Holy Spirit is God, so God knows everything. How big is God 
that when God wants to describe himself, he has to go on a search. So the Holy Spirit, that now of course he's using terms that we can understand. So, so God, to make himself known, God searches himself out. This is, this is one of the things that sometimes after we've been a believer for a couple of years or maybe a couple of decades or maybe a couple of millennia, I don't know, we start to think we know a little bit. Don't, have you ever had that? He's like, man, I think I'm really starting to get some things figured out. You aren't. The Holy Spirit is searching out the things of God. So this is pretty, this, this is our God who is so immense. God himself searches out the great things of God. So the Spirit is the one who tells us the things of God. The Spirit plums the depths of God to provide to us the stuff of God. He tells us about uh, himself. What we're going to discover is when we get down to verse 12, so I don't want to give it all away here, is when he plums the depths of God and, and makes known to us the deep things of God, the deepest things of God is the gospel. That God would save sinners through himself, the Son, Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's, why, here's where we have to be really understand. I don't know if you've ever met anybody new. You know, maybe you could imagine to your first date with your spouse, for those of you who are married. And, you know, what are the questions on there? Where are you from? Okay, what school do you go to? What's your favorite football team? That's kind of a deal breaker for some people. You know, you're on your first date and you just, you know, it's always a good idea to get the deal breaker questions out there so you don't get fully invested into this thing and six months down the line you're going, really? I didn't see that coming. Get all that stuff out on the table. For kids, you should be writing these down. These are some good, some good people are saying, do not take dating advice from Greg. Probably a good idea. <laughs> so he asked these questions. You know, you know, what are the, you know, what's your family like? What are your hopes and your dreams? And all these sorts of things that you're interested in when you're dating. I hope you continue to be interested in those things over time. And then as you get to know each other over time, the, the conversations change. And, and as you know somebody better over time, you have conversations about more intimate in things that you don't tell with, with everybody. And then you start to explore motivations and hurts and anticipations. And, and these are as we get to know somebody and we begin to trust somebody, we tell somebody more and more things of ourselves that maybe fewer and fewer people know. Here's what we need to understand about God. Somehow along the line, we all thought the gospel was the first date conversation. That that was, so what do you like? Well, I'm into the gospel. I'm into saving people. What do you do on the weekends for fun? I save people. Okay. And then we think as we get to know God better, we're going to move beyond that first date conversation, Jesus saves sinners, certainly into something more interesting. And what the Bible is telling us is no. That's the deep things of God. Is God is a redeeming God who saves sinners. And the implications of the gospel in our life is the deep things of what God wants to do in our lives. But somehow we flipped that. And we decided the gospel is the shallow things and uninteresting thing. Of, that's just how do we get started with God. But certainly it's going to go to something better. And what the Bible is telling us, no, that the deep things of God is he is a, a redeemer and a savior. Look at verse 11 with me. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. 
I think it, that's giving us actually more credit than we deserve. Have you ever been asked, what do you think? I have no idea what I think. <laughs> I'm confused by my own thoughts, okay? So who knows what's going on in our head besides ourselves? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The only way to know God is by His Spirit. There's no other way. God is incomprehensible unless He makes Himself known. If you know God, it's because the Spirit made Him known to you. It's not because you got it. So think of the most basic thing you know of God. Certainly you know something of God, right? As a believer, you know something. I, I, what, what can we think of? Let's say this. God's love endures forever. That seems like it should be a verse. <laughs> Psalm 136. I think it's repeated 457 times. Every other line, right? God's love endures forever. So is that a truth about God? When does God's love end? Never. How come it never ends? Because his love endures forever. Did we come to this realization that that is true, if you believe that is true? I happen to believe it's true because I've put it to the test. It's still enduring. God still loves me. Can you believe it? It's hard to believe. So God, I, I know God's love endures forever. I believe it's true because of my own experience and because of what the Bible has told me. Have I come to this knowledge because I'm, I'm insightful? No. Have I come to this knowledge because I have a brain in my head? No. God has seen fit to use that to some degree. The reason we have knowledge of God, in this case, is love endures forever, is because he decided to have his spirit tell us that in a way we would understand and believe. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It has everything to do with the spirit opening our eyes. And the first thing this ought to do is call into account our tendency to be arrogant. Our tendency to think we have things figured out. Our tendency to take credit for our spiritual insightfulness or spiritual sensitivity or our knowledge of the word of God or our willingness to put into practice the things of God's word in the decisions we make. On occasion, you may see somebody in your life or maybe in your family make a decision that you feel is, I don't know how to say it nice, stupid. <laughs> they make a moral decision that you would never make because the, you know what the Bible teaches. Have you ever seen anybody do this? Nobody wants to raise their hand. Okay. That's the person sitting next to you. and that'd be, hard, that'd be awkward. I get it. We tend to think we aren't making the same decision because of something about us. And that's biblically inaccurate. God, by his grace, has seen fit to make himself known to us by his spirit that we put into practice that which we know about God. So therefore, we should pray for the individual, certainly hold people to account if we have that kind of relationship with them. But there is no place in the life of a believer for a sense of better than. Because anything that's happened in your life that's spiritually merited was earned by the Spirit alone. And merely we should thank God that he has seen fit to make himself known to us in those profound ways. It's critically, there's good, as we get into the later portions of the book of 1 Corinthians, this argument is going to be critically important. That's why we've actually spent two weeks in it already and we've gotten one more week in it next week. This understanding 
that there should be no sense of spiritual arrogance or better thanness in the body of Christ. There's no, there's no place for it. And the key argument for that in this passage is because that which is happening in our life that we would call spiritual was done by whom? The Spirit, not by us. The only way to know God is by His Spirit. So maybe you're reading your Bible one day. I hope you're reading your Bible. I haven't said this for a while, so I'm going to give it to you again. I want you to read your Bible 15 minutes a day, five days out of seven. Have I said that before? You should write that down. And some of you are like, well, that's not enough. Harumph. <laughs> then you can read it more. You can make it up for the rest of us. 15 minutes a day, five days out of seven. That's all I got on that. Here we go. Say you're reading your Bible, which you're now going to be doing, 15 minutes a day, five days out of seven. And you read something, and you say, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. Uh, let me give you an example. This happened to me this week. I'm reading about David who fled from Jerusalem because his son Absalom was, well, Absalom. And then he, he wins and then comes back to Jerusalem. A couple of things on that. This is not, this is free. This doesn't count for the sermon. I have a really short sermon, so I have to add some stuff. <laughs> I'm kidding. Because um, some of you are saying, I, there's no chance I had a short sermon planned. You realize David left the same way Jesus left. He went out of the Mount of Olives, right? And so I'm reading this. Wait, is this the Mount of Olives? That's where Jesus went and took off from there. And then, then what did David do? He comes back, Mount of Olives, right? And then wait, Jesus is coming back, right? So what is Jesus going to do when he comes back? Do you remember? He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Yeah, split the thing apart. Yeah. <clears throat> what else do you do? What happens when Jesus comes back? Judgment. Right? When Jesus comes back, it's either you're a sheep or a goat. Time's up. It's over. Judgment. It's happening. What happened when David came back? Judgment. Everybody was held to account for their position on David when he left. I thought, oh man, that's incredible. I'd never seen this before. David is acting like Jesus is going to act. Jesus is better than David, obviously. So I read this. I thought, man, that is so cool. And I said to myself, self, you are so insightful. You're a, wow. Yeah, you read the Bible for 50 years and pretty soon you're going to see some stuff. No, what's the attitude when we, when we read the Bible and something catches our eye and we say, wait, there's something about God here I haven't seen before. What should we immediately do? Thank you, Lord. Because left to my own devices, I'm not going to see this. The truth of who God is and what he is up to in his word, our eyes are open to it, not because of our insightfulness or our intellect or our background or our training. It's because the Holy Spirit shows up. And gratitude is the only appropriate response in that moment. Amen. Spirit makes himself known to us. Let me show you an example of it in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus has been preaching a sermon almost everybody hated. How do I know everybody hated it? Because the Bible literally tells us everybody was leaving. People began to stop following him. Because of this message, I, I mean, the message basically ended. You can look earlier, and I'm looking at verse 63 of John chapter 6. A little bit earlier, he says something like, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah, it was a little bit rough, right? So people were like, this is hard. I don't know if we can follow this guy. And a lot of people started leaving. This is what Jesus says in verse 63 of John 6. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What do he say? The Spirit. It's not you, it's the Spirit. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus know, I should say Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Verse 66 of John 6. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, Jesus should have been reading some church growth books. He was doing things wrong because people were leaving. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what you have here in this moment is Peter having the Holy Spirit open his eyes to who Jesus is. It wasn't Peter figuring it out because Jesus had just said earlier, it is the Spirit who gives life. And in that moment, as some people were leaving Jesus because they no longer believed, they were abandoning Jesus because they didn't trust him. In that moment, Peter instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has opened eyes. Where would we go, Jesus? Your, your life. Where else would we go? We're with you. And that's the Holy Spirit opening his eyes. To have Jesus is to have God. There is nothing better, Peter would say. Nothing else is needed. So what does it mean to be spiritual? To see God for who he is by the Spirit. The spiritual life is discovering God. Okay, let's look at verses 12 and 13. Spiritual life is discovering God and his grace. Since the Spirit searches out the things of God, what does the Spirit find when it searches out the Spirit, the things of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read verses 12 and 13 if you don't mind. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The spiritual life is discovering God and his grace. If you want to discover what something is and its true value, you have to have an appraiser look at it. So if you have an antique or a piece of art, then you want to know if it is actually something that matters. Maybe you have a painting of dogs playing poker. And you are convinced there's never been a painting as good as this painting. And you want to have it assessed. So you would take it to an appraiser. And they would look at it. And maybe they would find some small detail that seems to indicate this is an extraordinarily rare painting of dogs playing poker. I don't know. And, and so what an appraiser does is they can look at it and assess it and appraise it based on details that the untrained eye wouldn't be able to perceive. And what Paul is telling us here in the Bible is we need someone to tell us about God the things we aren't seeing, specifically to tell us the things of God about his grace. So the gospel may seem simple compared with sophisticated philosophy, but what we discover is the gospel by the Spirit is revealed to have unsurpassed value. So you take the gospel to an appraiser, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives us the value, and the Spirit says there is nothing more valuable than what you have here. The Spirit makes this known 
to us. Verse 12, we have not received the spirit of the world. So first of all, there's a contrast between the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the world. The Holy Spirit is making known to us the things of God. The spirit of the world is opposed to everything that is of God. The spirit of the world is a spirit of selfishness, pursuing our appetites to the furthest degree that we can pursue them, centering our whole lives on our own experience instead of centering our lives on the things of God. So the spirit of, of the world here is contrasted with the Holy Spirit. These two things don't travel in the same lane or the same direction. These are opposites. So what is this? we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And the reason we have the spirit is that we might understand the things of God. Look at verse 7, just a little bit earlier in the passage. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That's chapter 2, verse 7. We covered it last week. So what the Holy Spirit makes known to us is that God decreed, he decided in eternity past to bring glory to himself by redeeming sinners through the sacrifice of himself. This is what he makes known to us by the power of the Spirit. He, he makes known to us free, freely that which is most important to him, that which has been he has been working on for all of eternity, which is bringing himself glory by expressing the reality that he is God who redeems, that he is God who saves, and that this has been the plan from the beginning of time. God, God expresses himself to us by his spirit. So if you have come to that place in your life at a, a moment in time where you say, I want to receive from God, his redemption by faith. We have to recognize that realization was given to us. We didn't arrive at that. The Holy Spirit makes our minds and hearts understand, I need a Savior. This is why the most important element of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ is our prayer for individuals who have not yet believed. Because if somebody does not have the Holy Spirit move in their hearts to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, I don't care who talks to them, they won't believe. Because it requires the work of the Spirit for a person to put faith in God. And what Paul is saying is we've received from the Spirit insight into what God has been doing for all of time. Making known to us that he is God who redeems. Two other verses that you, uh, that you know that I'm going to read that remind us of remind us of this. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. Some of these verses you've committed to memory, but not all of them. Or maybe you have. I don't want to judge you about your... Okay. Verse 4. But God, being in rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses... He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 of Ephesians 2. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Look, can I stop there for a minute? I'm going to anyway, so I don't know why I asked. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 7 here says that he wants to, in the coming ages, display his immeasurable riches of grace. How much grace does God have? Immeasurable riches of it. And he said, you know, I'd really like to show that off. So I wanna, I'm going to show it off. You know, if, if God was on an episode of Cribs, you'd just be a house full of grace. If you don't know what that is, call your grandkids. They probably don't know either. It's been, it's an old show. Um, so God wants to show us. So, but back in, in 1 Corinthians, when did, God, when did God come up with this plan? When did he make this decree? Before the foundation of the world. Long time ago. So what we have here between 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 2 is God's eternal timeline. Eternity past, he says, I got a plan. So that in eternity future, my grace will be shown off. How far ahead do you plan things? I mean, I, I got some stuff I'm going to do next week, maybe next month. Maybe you're making plans for the summer. Maybe we're a year or two out. God's an eternity out. He's got his outlook calendar open. It goes till eternity. And he's got, from eternity past, I'm, I've got a plan to make known to all the spiritual forces that I have made my redemptive power, the riches of my grace. And I want this to come to a glorious conclusion, an explosion of show-off grace in the coming ages. And so he puts together this, this plan from eternity past to eternity future, I'm going to show off the riches of my grace, and then we show up and say, I'm going to explore the deep things of God. That's, that's just the, the basics. And God goes, really? It's the basics? I've only been working on it for eternity. And you, you've managed to understand it all in five minutes. No, it's because we don't understand. So this is what he's saying. This is God's ageless plan to make known to us who he is and what he is like in his riches of grace and mercy and redemption through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When you got saved, how long had you been working on it? I don't know. It depends on how old you were. I was pretty young. I'd been working on it eight or nine years. I was a pretty old soul at that point, right? Some of you put a little more uh, water under the bridge before you got saved. Maybe it, it was a couple of decades and then you came to know the Lord. And, and then how many years do you, how many miles do you have on your salvation? Think of it that way. How many miles do you have and you got saved and you, you got some highway miles on it, right? You worn it out a little bit, a little tattered. How long have you been working on it? A couple of years, a couple of decades. How long has God been working on your salvation? Forever. And how long does he have your salvation planned out for? Till forever. So I think God's got more to do with your salvation than you do. Than I do. That's all that Paul is trying to do. Get us off ourselves. It's all God all the time. It is not a result of work so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One other uh, passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. Let me just read them. 
of this gospel, there's the Apostle Paul talking to the church in Ephesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he was, was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, for it is your glory. The gospel then, according to Paul here, is God's eternal plan that he has seen fit to glorify himself to the uh, powers of the heavenly places, that's what he says. God wants to show off to his angels the glory of his redemption through the church that he saves sinners. That's his glorious plan. He wants to show off to all of his creation the glory of his grace through his church. And he wants everybody to know the riches of his grace. And he does that through his body of believers. And he says, here's my plan. This is what I'm working on. This is the great project. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're almost done. Calm down. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Have you ever shared with somebody your faith and had them give, give you this look like, what is wrong with you? Right? You said, I'm a believer. And then, are you a kook? Have you tried to explain to them the truth of Jesus and they're like, I don't need any of that? Have you ever told somebody the gospel and they, what? Then maybe you've, maybe you've also heard some people's testimonies where they, where they get saved and, and, they, and you say, you know, there's a, a, a famous rock band, well, somewhat famous among Christians, um, Sorry, this can be embarrassing. It's a band called Striper. Have you heard of this band? Okay, good. It's good. Yeah, they're a rock band, rock and roll band. When I was a kid, they were foreboden. Uh, but anyway, now they're old. We can go. They like to make big, loud music about Jesus. They got saved watching a televangelist. This whole family, Michael Sweet, goes downstairs, turns on the TV, and there's one of these fundamentalist, get out your credit card, give me all your money kind of people. And the lead singer of Striper is watching this as a young person. He goes, wait, I believe that. I, I, need, I need Jesus. So, and that's crazy. He's basically listening to a health and wealth heretic. And he gets saved. And he spends his life serving the Lord, distributing Bibles through their concerts. Countless people have gotten saved because of this band. Because he got saved. So here's what's crazy. Is, is we think, why is that possible? It's because it's the Spirit who opens our eyes. It's the Spirit doing all of the work. It's not us. Life only comes by the Spirit via the gospel. So when you're sharing the gospel, when you're telling people your testimony, one of the things we can do is just take a step back and say, you know what, my job is not to be a salesman. 
I'm not here to overcome objections. I'm not here to be a pitch man. I'm not here to close the deal, get the sale. My job is to give my testimony and see what the Holy Spirit does with that. If the Holy Spirit decides to move them to salvation, good for the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit chooses not to, that's not my deal. That's not my job. My job is to just tell the truth. I've seen a risen, risen Savior. The gospel is a spirit ministry. Spiritual truths are only grasped when the spirit works. And salvation only comes when God, by his grace, decides to impart it upon us. There's an Old Testament passage that describes this in detail. And I'm going to read it. Let's see, how long is it? It's really, really long. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. I'm, it's really, really long, but I'm still going to read it. I didn't want you to think I was evaluating whether or not I was going to read it. That's, I think by now we know that's going to happen. Ezekiel, the, land, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of dry Baptist bones, dry bones. <laughs> wrong, sorry. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord, you know. That's always a good answer when God asks you a question. You know, God. <laughs> then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. As I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. The hand bone came to the shin bone and... And I looked, behold, there were sinews on them and the flesh had come upon them and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, the breath came into them and they lived. They stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am your Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live and will place you in your own land that you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. This valley of dry bones this is how it works. Wisdom, philosophy, intellect, temperament don't help you when you're a skeleton. They don't help you. You need the spirit to see God's grace. You need the Spirit to see God's grace. What's the greatest thing about knowing God? What's the greatest thing about knowing God? It's the truth of the gospel. 
And the greatest thing that happens in our life when we know God is in when the power of the deep things of God, forgiveness in Christ Jesus, works its way into the nooks and crannies of our lives. When we start seeing gospel-y kinds of things show up in our lives, the deep things of God begin to flow out of us. Things like forgiveness. Things like having purpose. Things like holy living, saying no to sin. Things like being a part of a body of believers. These things, the, when the gospel begins to percolate its way into our life, we say that the deep things of God is living a life that is moved by his spirit through forgiveness and grace. The greatest thing about, about knowing God is that we get God. And that changes our lives. The gospel, that God has made all things and that we ruined it through our sin and that he has given us redemption through his son Jesus Christ by faith alone is not the shallow things of God. That is the deep things of God. The more we know God, the more we seek God, the more we will know of his gospel and the implications of the gospel in our life. Do you have any sinners in your life? Besides you, I know that. Is there anybody in your life who messes with your day by sinning? They are selfish and arrogant, irresponsible. No? Well, then I don't have anything for you. That's what God does with us. Are there any sinners in God's life? Yes, who? Us. So with the deep things of God is we turn to our Lord and say, I want by your spirit, God, to be like you are with me, with the people in my life. I want grace in my life to such a degree that it flows into the lives of others, even when their ungodliness messes up my day. And that's hard to do, isn't it? It's really, really hard to do. But this is, this is where we say, what are the deep things of God and how do I let that permeate who I am and how I relate with others? How do I let that change my attitude towards others? How do I get off my high horse and serve others? So what is our mission then as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we should tell the gospel to one another. You know one thing Christians are really good at? Feeling bad about stuff all the time. Do you know any Christians who carry around a lot of shame? I mean, not you, obviously. Do you think anybody in your life has regret and needs to be reminded that not only does God love them by his grace, but so do you? I think there's a good, there's room for that in your relationships. One of the missions you can have, maybe you say, you know, I'm really afraid to tell my neighbor that Jesus loves them. I get that. And, and maybe your neighbor is a believer. Then tell the people in your house. Then, then tell the people who you go to home group with. Then, then tell the people in your, in your Bible study that Jesus loves them. And, and somebody may even tell you they really blew it this day. They did something really, really bad. And, and one of the ways the gospel changes you is it changes your facial expressions. Instead of the normal Christian facial expression, oh, why, I would never... Have you ever done that? Oh, I would never. Maybe that can be changed to Jesus still loves you and, and so do I. 
Let's talk about how we make that your past, not your future. But, but the love question never changes. So our mission can be allowing the gospel to redefine how we relate with the people around us. It can also change how we approach telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. We can stop taking so much ownership about closing the deal. One of the reasons we don't share the gospel with people is because we think we're going to mess it up. Let me let you in on a secret. You will. 100% of the time. So why not mess it up by doing it instead of not? Instead, rely that the Holy Spirit is the one. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and he's going to give his first evangelistic message after betraying the Savior. Okay, so you think he's feeling a little insecure? First betrayer gets up. He's done it three times, one night, as he watched Jesus beaten, before he goes to the cross, he's going to get up and give an evangelistic message. He gets up and preaches to a crowd of people who don't speak his language. They, they don't speak his language. So what are the odds that this Jesus betrayer speaking to a crowd of people is going to have any effectiveness sharing the gospel? What are the odds? Zero. It was so bad. Because you think, it, no, it was great. It was so bad. What did people say? We, I think he's drunk. Right? Do you remember that? Have you read this? It's like an Acts. Come on, certainly you got the Acts in your Bible reading. I mean, that's one of the easy ones. That's, that's how bad the sermon was. People accused him of being drunk. You know you're not preaching well when people think you're drunk. What happened? Thousands of people got saved. Why? Because Peter's amazing? No. Because the Holy Spirit is amazing. That's how it works. So all we got to do is tell people we've seen a risen Savior. And let the Holy Spirit do what he is going to do. That's our mission. Tell one another the gospel. Tell the gospel to the people around us. And let the gospel boil up in our lives so we are more like Jesus by the power of his spirit. The spiritual life, discovering God and his grace. Jesus, we thank you that you have come and saved sinners like us. God, we are grateful that your Holy Spirit has seen fit to open our eyes to the truth and power of your word. But God, there are are people here this morning who have never put their faith in Christ and our prayer in this moment is that your spirit even now would move in their hearts that they would admit they need a savior from their sin and that Jesus in this moment you would give them faith to believe that you save sinners because you died on the cross and you rose again that God you would glorify yourself by bringing new life in these folks even here this morning. God, would you forgive us as believers because we got bored with your gospel? We wanted something more interesting. God, would you open our eyes to the reality that we know you best when we know your gospel most? God, would you remind us again that the power of living for your purpose is by seeing the truth of your gospel worked out in our life every day. Give us your grace. Give us your humility. Give us your kindness that we may have a gospel impact on the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song?